It is my pleasure to introduce um, Eric Kaufman for our next panel. First, my name is Samantha Hill. I'm the Assistant Director of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities here at Bard College and Visiting Assistant Professor of Politics. Eric Kaufman, to my left, is Professor and Assistant Dean of Politics at Birkbeck College, University of London. He is the author of White Shift, which we'll be talking about today, Immigration, Populism, and the Future of White Majorities. He's also the author of Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth and the Rise and Fall of Anglo-America, the Decline of Dominant Ethnicity in the United States. He has contributed to the New York Times, Newsweek International, Foreign Affairs, New Statesman, National Review, and Prospect, among other publications. Please join me in welcoming Eric Kaufman. Okay. Thanks, Samantha, and thanks very much uh, uh, for welcoming me to such a beautiful campus and to the Arendt Center. Um, three sort of apologies to begin with. First, um, that I don't have a British accent, uh, despite teaching at a British university, so you don't get to have that. Um, uh, second, PowerPoint. Yes, I'm sorry I'm using it, um, but I won't hopefully hit you over the head with it too much. And thirdly, uh, I am a social scientist, so I guess I'm breaking with that humanities uh, thrust of, of most of today. But hopefully, I can keep you entertained at least a little bit for the next 20 minutes. Um, so my book, as, as mentioned uh, by Samantha, is entitled White Shift. Uh, oh, okay. We, I think we had a request for the... Okay. Right. Okay. Fine. So, um, really, what this term white shift is about, this is a book very much about the rise of right-wing populism and also connecting this to the idea of white identity. Um, the term, the title white shift is not just because my agent said we need to have a one-word title, but it, it has two real meanings here. The first is, um, in our lifetimes, the decline of white majorities in Western societies, uh, North America and Western Europe. Um, you're familiar with the idea that, that whites, non-Hispanic whites will decline to roughly 50% of the U.S. population around 2050. That's also going to happen in New Zealand and Canada. And in Western Europe, it'll happen by the end of the century. And that's a major, major change in these societies. And I'm arguing that it is this demographic shift that ultimately underlies what we're seeing in terms of the upsurge of right-wing populism. And it's very much connected to the immigration issue, which I'm going to talk about a fair bit. The second meaning of white shift is really a much longer-term uh, development, and I'm arguing that, um, that white majorities will ultimately give way to mixed-race majorities. But that's not going to happen for quite some time. So if you take England and Wales, uh, some work I've done with a demographer there suggests that the mixed-race share, which is only 2% of the, of the population now, is, is still only going to be about 7% by mid-century, and it's not till we get to the end of the century that we start to see a jump. It's up to 30% based on existing intermarriage rates. Immigration doesn't affect the picture much. And then very quickly after that, 50 years later, it's 75% of the population. So that's the sort of second, more longer-term meaning of white shift, is that the meaning of white is going to change substantially to become what Mike, Mike Lynn talks about as being a beige ethnic majority. There's two real entities that I'm talking about in this book. One is ethnicity and the other is nationhood. By ethnicity, I'm referring to a community um, that believes itself to be of shared ancestry. We heard about the Jews and um, descent back to Abraham, for example. This idea of having a, a myth of origin is central to the meaning of ethnicity. Um, that means ethnicity is not just a minority thing, but a majority thing as well. And roughly 70% of the world's countries have an ethnic majority of at least 50% of the population. So this is a fairly widespread phenomenon in the world. And so the decline of white ethnic majorities in the West is the sort of first problematic of the book. The second, however, has to do with national identity. Nation refers to the territorial political units. So the United States would be the nation. The ethnic majority would be white American, for example, even though white American is kind of a blend of different European groups that have intermarried together. Um, so when it comes to the nation, 
Um, it's not just about the American creed, for example, but it is also about a whole set of secondary symbols, landscape, history, the ethnic makeup of the population, sports, all these sort of everyday, what are known as everyday symbols, are also part of the national identity of, of many people. And it's there that we're seeing more of the divisions emerging around that what is the nation. Um, and people who are attached to a particular ethnic composition of the country, even if they except that everybody, regardless of ethnicity, is an equal member of the nation, they may have a view of what is the nation I knew growing up, how fast is that nation changing, etc. And so that, too, is another, the nation is the second category I look at. So ethnic majorities and also nations and what I call ethno-traditional nationalism, which is attachment to a conception of the country that embodies a particular historic ethnic composition. Not the same thing as ethnic nationalism, which is, for example, what white nationalism is about, which says you must be white to be a member of the nation, and everyone else is outside of that. So it's partly moving to another category, which is not quite about ethnic nationalism, and it's not quite civic nationalism. Um, and so I'm interested in particular in how white ethnic majorities in this decline phase that they're in, in this uh, century, how they are responding to these demographic changes. And the issue of immigration is really the central one. Uh, if we want to explain the shift in politics that's taking place, the populism and the polarization. Now, if you look at this from the American National Elections Survey, uh, sorry, political scientists love these sorts of charts, uh, and I work mainly with um, survey data. Um, what this really tells us is that Donald Trump's vote, for example, is not about the economy. I mean, this is white Americans. And if you look at this chart, you can see that down here we have your view on immigration from increase it a lot to reduce it a lot. And here we have your probability of having voted Trump in the 2016 elections. And you can see that if you want immigration reduced a lot, it's more or less a point eight, eight in 10 chance that you voted Trump. And if you want it increased a lot, it's sort of less than a one in 10 chance. That's an absolutely massive statistical effect. All these different colored lines are income bands. How much money do you make? Under 15,000 or you know, 90,000 to 150K? That doesn't make any difference at all in this model. Um, in some cases, with the Brexit vote in Britain, for example, poorer people were more likely to vote to leave the European Union. That is a significant effect. So I'm not saying the economy doesn't matter at all. But it's really about immigration. And immigration, there's a consensus really in the political science literature that the Immigration attitudes are not related to personal economic circumstances on the whole, income, job share, etc. So this idea that this is really about competition in the labor market is, I think, an extremely weak argument. Um, so then it begs the question, well, where do attitudes to immigration come from? And this is where I want to get into a discussion of things like white identity and also psychological factors, because these psychological factors are becoming increasingly important for our politics. The so-called open-closed cultural dimension is taking over, not taking over, but it is increasing in importance compared to the old left-right economic dimension around redistribution of wealth versus free markets, uh, which was a big issue in, in the second half of the 20th century. Still there, I'm not claiming that issue's gone away, but this new cultural issue is really reconfiguring politics in a big way. Uh, if you think of Britain, uh, where I've lived for over 20 years, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party have almost an identical class makeup now, uh, which would have been unthinkable you know, in 1950, when really the Tories were the, the middle-class party and the Labour Party was the working-class party. But that's completely shifting, and it's shifting in all Western countries because these cultural issues, Brexit is reflecting that, uh, are leading to a, a realignment in politics. Um, so what on earth does this picture have to do with immigration attitudes? Anybody's workspace look like that? Um, <laughs> Well, it turns out there is a, an important statistical relationship. And what is that relationship? Well, this is, this is some data from um, the United Kingdom. And what this really shows is that if you are in favor of much tighter restrictions on immigration, then of the people who are in favor of much tighter immigration restrictions, 70% say their workspace is neat and tidy, 30% that it's messy. Whereas if you're in favor of much looser restrictions, it's sort of 50-50. That's a statistically significant relationship. And it has really to do with perceptions of difference, difference as disorder. This is the orientation that some 
Well, political psychology would refer to this as psychological authoritarianism. This idea of seeing differences disorder and wanting to, to limit the degree of difference in society. Um, here's another one. I'm Canadian, and so if we go about seven hours northwest of here, we'd see a lot of this kind of scene of cabins on a lake. The kind of person who goes to this would probably tend to return each year and go there on holiday. Uh, so the question for you really is, do you go to the same place on holiday each year or do you go somewhere different? Again, a very powerful link to uh, views on immigration. I should, by the way, preface this by saying that this is restricted to 18 to 24-year-old upper-middle-class white British people. So we've screened out to a large extent age, class, and ethnicity as influences on where you go on holiday or how neat your desk is. Um, and what you see here is those who are in favor of much tighter restrictions. There is uh, almost 50% say they go to the same place on holiday each year. Um, more, are about 10 points higher than those who go somewhere different, whereas amongst those who want much looser restriction, it's more or less three to one saying they go somewhere different on holiday each year. So what has that actually got to do with uh, politics, because these are not political issues, messiness of desks going on holidays somewhere different each year. What they are is a clue to a particular psychological makeup, which twin studies tell us is 50% genetic, actually. So we have a very strong genetic input through psychology into political attitudes. Jonathan Haidt has looked into this quite a bit, and in his TED Talk, he says, well, what kind of person would want to join a global community welcoming people from every discipline and culture, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, well, that's going to be somebody with a particular psychological makeup, high in, in openness, which is one of the big five personality traits, and low in this desire for order, which is known as authoritarianism in the literature, or this desire for the present to be like the past, which is known as uh, status quo conservatism by writers like Karen Stenner. So this idea of seeing difference as disorder and change as loss is key to understanding the psychology, this conservative psychology which animates those who are more, or have a lower tolerance for demographic change coming through immigration and therefore tend to be more anti-immigration. And that tends to feed in also into other forms of identification. Uh, you may have come across these people. Um, the British royal family. So um, the question becomes how, what kinds of people are very attached to family and rate family as being extremely important? It's, it's important to, to preface this by saying in the UK, family is not a political issue. That is not an issue that has been politicized. It has been in the US to some degree. Um, quite striking, actually, if the question here is, is family over everything, how much do you agree with that statement? Again, the people who want much tighter restrictions, it's sort of 70%. I can't even see that from here. Something like 75% uh, are agreeing with that and maybe only about under 20% disagreeing, whereas amongst those who want much looser restrictions, only 35% would agree with this statement and 50% would disagree. So again, another massive difference around the attachment to family. And Jonathan Haidt actually has a, has a recent paper, a co-authored paper that sort of makes this, you know, looks at this and actually shows that um, conservatives are more attached to family and liberals more attached to friends. And this is partly to do with uh, being attached to ascribed identities that uh, come through birth, which tend to root you in time and place, versus chosen voluntary uh, identities, which appeal more to a different type of psychology. So this sort of psychological basis is becoming more important for uh, ordering our politics, and especially around the issue of immigration. Now, I want to kind of segue here into talking about ethnicity and race, because there's a connection, I believe, through from family, attachment to family, to being attached to ancestry, and then being attached to race. Um, so, okay, I, I don't expect you to understand this right away, but what, I'm, what I've done here is I've asked a question which is asked on the U.S. Census. This is from the, from the United States, and this is something that was asked only a few weeks ago. Um, I did a survey on this. So there's a question that says, what is your main ancestry? Is it Haitian, German, Irish, Jewish, whatever. Uh, and secondly, how important is your ancestry to who you are, your sense of who you are? Uh, and it turns out that the importance of your ancestry to your sense of who you are is a strong, incredibly strong predictor of the importance of your racial identity 
to your sense of who you are. And so whether we're talking about minorities or whites, if you say that your ancestry really isn't important, and as a Salvadorian or a Filipino or an Irish, yes, that's my ancestry, it doesn't mean much to me, the chance that your racial identity as Hispanic, Asian, black, white is going to mean something to you is quite low. Less than 2 in 10, really low, for whether we're talking about whites or minorities. However, if you say that your ancestry, as say German, Irish, or, or quote-unquote American, which is a major ancestry in particularly the southern United States, if you say that that's very important to your sense of who you are, amongst whites, then you, will, you have about a 6 in 10 chance of saying that white identity is an important component of who you are. And likewise, for minorities, it's even higher, um, and there are various reasons for that. But if you take Hispanics and Asians, if you're strongly attached to being Cuban or Puerto Rican, you're going to be strongly attached to being Hispanic. Part of the point of this is to say that there are, I think, very similar dynamics going on between whites and non-whites. That is, the attachment to white identity is driven largely through this attachment to ancestry. It is not principally about wanting to get more resources and power. So part of the argument here is it doesn't really make much sense to say, and, and the other point behind this is that people are more attached to their ancestry, their ethnicity, than to the racial group, which is a kind of supra-ethnic umbrella group. That also doesn't make, make a whole lot of sense from a power-driven perspective. If you see the world in power terms, you should be more attached to the larger, more powerful entity, which is the racial group, rather than the ethnic group, which is about ancestry. However, if this is about cultural attachment to symbols, myths, and memories, then the attachment to ancestry makes more sense because this is where the richness of the, um, the narrative and the, and the collective memory comes from. So I really think that this is kind of evidence that whites are really not that different from non-whites. Their attachment to race is very much driven through cultural attachment, attachment to symbols, stories, memories, etc. That then complicates, I think, an analysis that would tend to see whiteness as all about power and domination and would tend to stigmatize it as essentially about white supremacy and racism. It's not to say that there aren't bad things that can happen from identifying positively with a particular ancestry. You can be nepotistic, you can favor your group and discriminate against others. So I'm not claiming this is all fine. However, it does sort of raise a question mark around some of the interpretations uh, of white identity that put it down largely to domination and power dynamics. Um, and, and this sort of is a segue into some earlier research I did in 2017 in 18 countries. And this is just from the United States where if you sort of extrapolate from this idea of racial identity as coming from that conservative orientation which focuses on family and ancestry, then what you see is a big split between those who value their white identity and those who don't. And we know from work by Ashley Jardina, for example, in her book White Identity Politics, that the degree of attachment to white identity is both a major predictor of immigration attitudes but also support for Donald Trump and what we see coming in in addition to that is that um, there's a divide over whether this is seen as legitimate. Is it legitimate to defend your group's interests? Um, and the question that I, I put here to people is, uh, a white American who identifies with her group and its history... Racist or B, sorry, yeah, you know, A, uh, sort of acting in her group's racial self-interest, which is not racist, or two, being racist. We'll leave the don't knows to one side. Now, I have to confess, I got this notion of racial self-interest from Shadi Hamid over at Brookings, who wrote a quite interesting piece in the Washington Post on this. So the question really is, is somebody who wants to reduce immigration simply doing it, doing something that is rationally going to maximize her group's self-interest? Because very few European or Canadian or Australian people are going to come to the United States for demographic and economic reasons. Or is this actually a racist thing? And what you see is a very sharp split between particularly white liberals and white conservatives. So white Clinton voters with postgraduate degrees, 91% say this woman is being racist. Trump voters without degrees, it's about 6%. In Britain... Leave voters, people who voted to leave the European Union without a degree, it's zero. 
Um, so they are, these are incredibly sharp splits, but they're not splits specifically about immigration. They're, they're splits over the morality of immigration. And so we have, what we have is two things going on. We have a polarization around how you respond to demographic change and immigration. Are you a person who sees change as interesting and exciting or change as loss? That leads to one set of polarizations, but the second overlaid on top of this is an interlocking polarization over the legitimacy of immigration restriction. Um, is it even legitimate to, to want to restrict immigration, particularly for ethnocultural reasons? And that is a second and perhaps even more burning split, but it's, it's sharpest in the United States, but it's there in all Western countries. On the, if you look at non-Western countries, the split is not anywhere near as strong on this ideological measure. So we have two sets of interlocking polarization layered one on top of the other. Um, and that then re results in something quite interesting. So this is a, a chart that looks at the share of white Americans who want to reduce immigration beginning in 1992 and moving forward to 2016, which is uh, when Trump comes into office. The blue is Democrats and the, um, the red is Republicans. And you can see that actually, you know, about half of Americans wanted to re reduce immigration, but the differences by party were very small. You know, five points maybe, expanding a little bit as we get out into the Obama era, but nothing really that dramatic until we hit 2016. And then all of a sudden there's this 50-point gap in opinion between Republicans and Democrats. Now, part of that is because um, Obama voters who wanted less immigration, switched to voting for Trump. But in addition, and what's often not focused on, is that a lot of Democrats actually became a lot more liberal on immigration. And in fact, some of the most recent data we have for 2018 for the American National Election Study suggests almost 60% of white Democratic voters want increased immigration, which is really unprecedented in, in the data that we have. So you're getting this polarization. First of all, um, because you get conservatives who, who want immigration reduced, but then you get liberals who are reacting against, in this case, the in increased conservatism on immigration. And so you get this ratcheting effect, and you see that polarization. That's starting to happen in Europe as well, by the way. You can see it in the latest European elections where both the, if you like, cosmopolitan liberal side and the right-wing uh, populist side both did better at the expense of mainstream parties. And that's, again, this cultural axis the so-called open-closed cultural axis overlaying and taking over to some extent from the economic uh, left-right axis. Um, okay, so really, this is, that's the, that was the last slide. So I, really what I've been talking about here is that the orientation towards diversity and change, which is deeply psychological, has a strong hereditary component. Um, determines whether somebody, or, or in, in many ways governs whether somebody processes immigration as a, as a nice thing and an interesting thing, as a stimulating thing, or as something that is causing insecurity toward, of their identity and, and is leading them to think things were better in the past. Secondly, um, as we've seen, the orientation towards white identity and the defense of group interests is very different. So conservatives see it as quite natural and normal to defend groups' demographic interests by, for example, restricting immigration. Um, liberals see that as racism. And this is, again, a misunderstanding, which I think is, is leading to a second level of polarization. What I argue in the book is that we need to be able to have a conversation on this open-closed dimension, because really it's not about open-closed. There's very few people who want an open door and very few people who want zero immigration. What it really is is a, a debate. It should be a debate about how fast what is the level? And we shouldn't have people saying on one side, anyone who wants a higher level is a globalist traitor. And on the other side, anyone who wants a lower level is in some way a deplorable racist. We need to be able to get past that binary black-white kind of thinking to saying, okay, let's negotiate over, let's reach an accommodation that satisfies as best we can both sides in this debate. Just as we have on the tax debate between people who want lower taxes uh, and less welfare spending and those who want more welfare spending, we can reach an accommodation. I know it's not perfect, but we should be able to talk about the immigration and cultural issues the same way we do the economic issues. Because otherwise, if we just turn it into this sort of contest, you're either a, a good person or a bad person, open or you're closed, then we get this pitched battle and this increasing polarization. So part of the book is saying that the second thing is 
The social psychology literature tells us that uh, attachment to in-group and hatred of the out-group are different dispositions. You know, if I'm a lawyer and I'm attached, or if I'm a professor and I'm attached to being a professor, doesn't mean I hate lawyers. I may hate lawyers anyway, but that's a separate question. Um, attachment to your in-group is not correlated with hatred of the out-group, except in situations of violent conflict. And so on the American National Election Study, we know that white Americans who are attached to being white are no more likely to feel cool towards blacks and Hispanics than white Americans who are not particularly attached to being white. Because partly, as we saw from those slides, the attachment to being white stems as a sort of emergent property out of attachment to, for example, family and ancestry. And so it's important to disentangle attachment to and hatred of. And there's an important paper by Marilyn Brewer called uh, In-Group Love and Out-Group Hate, which sort of goes through this literature. And it's got thousands of citations and this really decades-long psychology literature that establishes that these are quite different dispositions. Whereas if we conflate them and we think that any white person who actually has, it, has identifies with their group must hate blacks and Hispanics or, or members of out-groups, I think we're backing people into a corner. Again, citing more research here, in experiments where you get people to read about a policy and then you add, and this is racist to it. Uh, there's a certain chunk of the particularly conservative electorate that will react very negatively to that and increase their support, for example, for Donald Trump and for conservative policies as a sort of reactance. And there's been about three or four studies that show this effect. So it's really not a good strategy, I think, to be pursuing. What we should be pursuing is a kind of middle ground, a kind of accommodation. And I do believe there is a way of finding an accommodation on these tricky cultural issues that are increasingly dividing Western societies. And part of the book really went, went looking long-term is to say, um, ideally, conservatives would be able to see in the rising mixed-race population a, continu a, a continuation of their ancestry, of their collective memories, see it as a positive thing, and liberals too can see this as a positive thing. A message that is saying more diversity is great and if you don't like it, you're a racist is guaranteed to go down badly with people who aren't psychologically wired to, a, to prefer diversity. Everyone has to tolerate diversity. That's the hallmark of a liberal society. But to say people must celebrate and prefer is actually kind of not particularly realistic and I think is not a, a particularly sharp political strategy. Um, I think that's pretty much all I got to say. So I'm going to... Uh Perfect, perfect. Um, is that on? Is that working? Okay, good. Okay, so Eric, you're going to have to forgive me because I took off my political science hat a number of years ago and, and have, have been reading mostly Hannah Arendt. Um, so my questions might seem a little naive. And I want to start with a pretty straightforward question to kind of fill out the narrative that you're creating around all of this um, political sociological research that you've done and all these numbers that you've just shared with us. So it's just a, the first question, just two parts. What is whiteness in the way that you're talking about it? And if there is whiteness as an ethnic group in the way that you're describing it. Is it legitimate to advocate for white identity, and what does that mean? Great. Okay, some, some really good questions. Everyone can hear me. Yeah, okay, so I don't, I'm not a huge fan of the term whiteness because I, I'm a fan of talking about white, whites as a racial group or an ethnic group, which are not the same thing. So if you think about the United States, American history, um, you had a dominant ethnic group in the United States prior to, let's say, Kennedy's election, which was defined by being Protestant and white, often descended from uh, early settlers to the United States. Catholics and Jews were outside of that. Uh, but they were still white. So the, the meaning of, of whiteness, I guess, racially, is, is to do with phenotype and appearance. And I kind of think of it more like, you know, like the colors. You know, like, and so we can't necessarily tell when blue becomes green, that's a fuzzy boundary, but it's very much about um, physical appearance, whereas ethnicity, uh, which is about myths of origin and um, the cultural markers that mark up, in this case, Protestantism, was a boundary between the ethnic majority group and other groups. And so I think talking about whiteness obscures that nuance. Um, but 
with as with any identity, I think anything taken to an extreme is going to be negative. Uh, absolutely, and that could be true of ideology like religion or socialism or whatever or liberalism. Um, so it's very important that any identity be moderate. Uh, and so I'm not. I'm one of these people who's. There are some people who say, "Oh, identity politics is just the worst thing in the world," or or there's people who say, "No, it's a great thing." I think it. It's again going back to Jonathan Haidt's distinction between a a common enemy version of identity that says we define ourselves as Irish because we hate the English. I mean, that kind of identity is, I think, not a particularly good form of identity because it's premised on hating an, an outgroup. Now, maybe they deserve it, and okay, fine. Uh, but <laughs> if if it's kind of if that's what what you hang your identity on, then I think that's a problem. Uh, but then there's what he calls common humanity identity, which says, no, we're attached to our traditions and myths and, and memories, but we don't hate anybody, and this is just our culture that we want to... So I think I would be in favor very much of that second form of identity, and also that, that it doesn't transcend liberal principles. So this idea of equal treatment has to be maintained, so you're not going to just hire members of your own group because you're really attached to your own group. You've actually got to moderate that in line with liberal principles. Yeah, that's, that's great. So that... I had a student in one of my classes last week, and she said we were talking about Derek Walcott's Omeros, and she she said there are two Americas. She said there's the American history of imperialism, racism, and colonialism, genocide of Native peoples, and then there's Marilyn Monroe, apple pie, and baseball. She said one is good and one is bad. I'll leave it to you to decide. That's what she said to me. And I thought, it, I thought it was a really nice phrasing. And I think it cuts to part of what you're talking about there in separating out whiteness as an idea from the mythologies that are attendant to white identity in the United States. So just to kind of perhaps put it in the phrasing of Reverend Jackie from earlier, um, I think who brought this up, is it possible for white Americans that you're describing who feel their identity being lost, um, is it possible to retain the mythology of somebody like, let's say, Jefferson, while acknowledging the history of slavery and racism in the United States? How do you see that playing out in the political sphere? Right, well, I think, yeah, the, the question here is, both are true, and what is the what is the rel- how much should what we are think? the both what are both well, both Americas both, both Americas are true. Um, the question is, when you wake up in the morning, what should you think about, and how much do you, how much time do you spend thinking about each? That to, that's the important question. Is it the case that a white American should spend most of their time thinking about the bad stuff as being their identity or the good stuff? I'm of the view that they must acknowledge the bad stuff, but that the good stuff is is something that that can be foregrounded. So, and actually, and, and this is the same for any group. I mean, if you scratch most groups, you will. You know, if you scratch Mexican identity, uh, and you look at the history of Mexico, and, and and if you scratch Aztec identity, and you look at what they did, you know, you can go on and on and on. So, I think this is a question not of you've got different episodes, absolutely, but it's a question of. It's, again, like personal identity. You know, if I stole something from a store when I was 16, should I wake up every morning thinking about that? Well, probably not, but I should certainly acknowledge I did something wrong. So I guess it's about relative emphasis in your identity. That's how I put it. Yeah. So I just I want to put it in more practical terms, perhaps. So how do you think a fifth-grade history teacher in a public school in New York City should be teaching the American founding? Well, in the... In my book, I have this term multivocalism, which I, I think, anyway, I'm trying to sort of, it's the horse I'm trying to ride, where I think, actually, you're not going to have a single hymn sheet mm-hmm. of national identity. Because depending on which ethnic group you're from, which class, which region, you're going to have a different view on the nation. And, and actually, national identity is very much something that comes from below, that people construct that suits them personally. There's a term called personal nationalism, which comes from a writer called um, Cohen in 1996, he's got a good paper on this, that we have a different lens on the nation. Everybody has a different lens. So there sh- it should be more like a menu where you work your way through the menu differently depending upon uh, you know, what your ethnic background is, what your ideological background is, etc. I don't think there should be this single hymn sheet that everybody must recite. 
Uh, and that gives enough flexibility, I think, for those who are attracted to Jamestown and Western settlement. That can be important for them. Other people, it could be slavery or it could be something else. I, now, you have to learn it all, but I think everyone's going to have a different view. I've done, again, some research on this. And if you look at the, the American history as a major part of the American national identity of, is more important for white Americans and to some extent Latino Americans than it is for African Americans. Also, Republicans and Democrats emphasize different aspects of America in their national identities. So again, something like diversity will be, or immigration will be, will be ranked higher by Democrats than Republicans as part of their national identity. And that's fine, absolutely fine. You, can't, you don't need everybody to identify in exactly the same way. So one of, the, one of the topics that came up in your talk was immigration. And what kind of role immigration is playing in our current electoral politics um, and thinking about perceptions of disorder um, and immigration views. And one of the things that you talk about um, for quite a bit in your book is the need for long-term refugee camps to deal with the current refugee crisis um, that we're facing. And so one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading your book um, and thinking about the current immigration crisis in the United States and the concentration camps along the border that have been set up for migrant children is how are you thinking about that in the context of the upcoming presidential election? And, you know, if, if you are, um, I'm assuming, given your talk, you know, you don't desire to have Donald Trump reelected in right. 2020, what, how, how, can, how can we as not Donald Trump voters, I'll just to throw the political net, <laughs> cast, cast it wide there, how can we talk about immigration in a way that will lessen these attitudes? Well, I do think that, I mean, I do think that the sort of liberal side needs to have an answer on immigration. I mean, if, and, and certainly in the case of Brexit, um, the Remain side just were told to change the subject whenever immigration came up to the economy. That didn't work in the Brexit case, and I don't know in the U.S. case whether that will work. I, you, there needs to be an answer. Like, so I think taking the border seriously, how are you going to control unauthorized immigration the Democrats need, would, would have to have some answer to that question, I would say. I mean, clearly in the Obama Do you period, have an answer? Yeah, I mean, I think that there has to be border security. I mean, if you go back to the Obama period, Obama did take that issue seriously, and I would have thought that, that the Democrats today should kind of do what, you know, I think there are lessons from the Obama period. Now, you may not like what he did, but I actually think you have to reassure you know, there's a chunk of voters who want to see something done about illegal immigration, and it's not unreasonable. I mean, if we take other countries in the West, if anything like the numbers of illegal immigrants that exist in the U.S. existed in Britain or France or anywhere else, I mean, this would be, yeah, there would be a hue and cry. So actually the U.S. is extremely tolerant on this issue if we compare to other Western, even Canada, quite frankly. So, um, so I think there has to be some policy of, and so there, one of the things would be, okay, better cooperate, not stigmatizing Mexico and stigmatizing, the way Trump talks about Mexico is very counterproductive. If you, what you want to do is cooperate with Central American countries, with Mexico, in a way that will help to solve the, solve the problem. You want to have enough resources to provide better facilities on the border so you're not putting people in cages. So these are all th ways in which the Democrats could distinguish their, themselves from Trump, but yet have a message on the border. I think that would be sensible. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Okay. I'm going to open it up for questions from the audience. So we have some time. I see a number of hands um, here in the, uh, with the plaid, I think. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I thought your, I thought your um, statistics were interesting, but I wonder um, have you considered the possibility that those are second-order effects that have resulted really from the neoliberal policies that have eliminated many of the institutions of social solidarity and economic security in our country so that people have to find a way in which to deal with the fact that they now live much less connected and more insecure lives as a result of our government's policies? Yeah, I think there's, there's no question that neoliberal economics is, I think it's an upstream factor that, that 
but, but I guess I'm more analyzing the proximate determinants. Um, so I would agree with you that, particularly in Europe, maybe in the United States it's harder to see. And the reason I say that is we would expect people who have more job insecurity or lower incomes, therefore, to be more likely to vote for Trump, which they're not. Now, it could be that they're cross-pressured between their sort of um, economic insecurity and other cu cultural uh, issues. But we haven't seen, honestly, haven't seen a huge amount of evidence that people's economic precariousness per se is a factor in right-wing populism. It is a factor in left-wing populism. Jeremy Corbyn in Britain, for example, or Syriza or Podemos. But in terms of right-wing populism, I haven't seen very compelling evidence that this is a major factor. Of course, it is it is a factor. I'm not saying it means nothing. Um, but I just don't think it's as as important a factor as these sort of cultural, psychological ones around the immigration issue. Um, but can I, I just yeah. want to jump in there from the American perspective, because, you know, since the 1970s in the United States, we've been dealing with economic stagnation. We're essentially experiencing an existential crisis in this country right now. Suicides in record numbers, drug epidemic deaths in record numbers. And, you know, so I'm thinking of, you know, like Arlie Hochschild's book, right, Strangers in Their Own Land, where we, where we get a portrait of a low-income community in Louisiana that's voting for Trump, that has a very right-wing populist agenda, um, even though we, you know, from a liberal perspective might think that it's, you know, counterproductive to their own immediate interests. You know, and so I think I'm not sure how we separate um, economics from from viewpoint, you know, from r at least racial identity, um, especially in the history of the United States when we're talking about what's motivating voters. Well, I, I, do, I know that, I mean, I guess I'm fairly, you know, I tend to stick with what the data tells me and it's not actually telling me that the economic position of individuals is really that big a factor. And I know Hawkshaw's book, but I think there's a risk of going into, particularly taking a geographic lens on a problem, so places outside the big cities that maybe are, are struggling. Mm -hmm. Geography can be very distorting. So part, the main reason, for example, that cities tend to have a low Trump vote or a low Brexit vote is because they have lots of three types of demographics, which are young people in their 20s, um, people with degrees, and ethnic minorities, all groups that are very low populist voting. When you strip that out, actually, if you take a white working-class Londoner and a white working-class person anywhere else in the country, as likely to vote leave in London. So I'm not so convinced. So here's by, my yeah, fear. Okay. Here's my fear with that. If yeah. you try to strip out the other, I'll call them identity markers, like class and let's say sex or gender and talk about whiteness as an ethnic identity, it feels like you're crystallizing whiteness into an identity that you're advocating people stake their political claim in. And I'm not sure how that is going to move either the needle on the left or the right when it comes to um, you know, trying to defeat Trump in 2020 or to, you know, perhaps push against the kind of identity politics that are motivating a lot of the very left political agenda right now because you're still advocating for identity politics just based upon whiteness, which does have a history of class and oppression in the United States. I, well, I'm not advocating for identity politics. What I'm sort of saying is so that... So white ethnic identity is not an identity. It is so, they sh so white people shouldn't feel take meaning from their identity okay. as whites. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying... So what I'm saying is let's treat all groups equally. That if you try and suppress even a common humanity-based moderate white identity while encouraging a sort of common enemy type identity amongst other groups, that's not a good formula. What you want to uh -huh. do is say... Identity is fine, and that will influence... Not, it's not the case that all politics is identity politics, but it's, people are going to... Identities are going to affect politics, but it's got to be moderate, and it's got to be this common humanity-based identity. But how can you talk about white identity in the United States without talking about the history of racism? Well, because, I, again... Right, okay. <laughs> you, look, there's a history of racism, but... Okay, look, I, I think... Right, okay. Uh, I think there's a difference between, again, hostility to outgroups and attachment to in-groups. Now, 
again, it's, it, you know, there is a distinction there to be made. I think to just say this identity is toxic because of a history and it's forever going to be toxic is it's simply a bad strategy, regardless of whether you think that's a, an ethical stance to take. I just think it's really not a good strategy uh, for, for progressives to take, to actually toxify that identity, which, as I've argued, is coming largely out of identification with ancestry and, and cultural attachments, simply because there may be an association in the past, which is very real, mm. but I just think... To hang that forever. But in is, your is imagination, what are the material elements of that attachment to one's family? To I mean, are we actually talking about apple pie and baseball? Because I mean, I meant that as a metaphor. Right. <laughs> right. Well, people are attached to these identities. They, they, there may, if you take ancestry, there are kind of collective memories associated with that. There are symbols and traditions, family background. Um, I think to sort of rule that out of bounds on the basis of, of you know, drawing a connection back to you know, very real sins that were committed in the past, mm-hmm. and to say that that forever means that this identity is something that has to be repressed and others to be celebrated, even though actually if we scratch the surface of a lot of these other identities, we would find similar histories of you know, going back for, you know, to colonialism or whatever. I just think it's not a productive way to go. I think you want to have a moderation mm-hmm. of these identities, subordinate to liberal principles of equal treatment, for example. So but I what's think that, the story white people should tell themselves? Well, I don't think that white guilt is the right story. I think acknowledge the, the sins by all means that were committed by white groups who may or may not have been your ancestors. That's absolutely right. But I think to, to actually make that... The definition of whiteness is the sort of terrible so, stuff. I just think yeah. that's not productive. I think it's important to acknowledge absolutely, but actually to make that the defining feature is strategically just, I think, a bad move. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, so I was, you know, I was reading your book at a bar the other night, and an African-American woman sat down next to me, and she said, what's that about? And, and I, I told her, and she put her hand on my arm, and she said, please go tell your people to chill the fuck out. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, as as um, as one of our speakers said earlier, um, you know, it's I think there's a bit of agreement that um, you know people are tired of of white people saying, oh, I, you know, like yes, I feel so bad, you know, because it's still then making the narrative all about white people. That's not quite your point, but I I think it it follows the same line of thinking. But you still haven't answered my question. What is the good story then? that white people should be telling themselves in your view so that they still feel like they have meaning in their lives? Well, <laughs> wow, there's... A, um, <laughs> well, all, part of the story is that particularly identification with their ancestral group is fine, but even the white group has... I mean, sure, they've, they've done bad things and they've done good things, and most groups you'll find that if you go through their past far enough. So I just think that they can take pride in building a, a civilization that's by world historical standards quite advanced, has flaws, yeah, the same that any, any other group can tell a similar story about the good things they did and, and that that's, mm-hmm. that should be defining the identity while not denying. Right. So uh, many groups deny, you know, so that in Turkey they haven't come to terms with the Armenian genocide. Yeah, you don't want to be doing suppression, yeah. but you don't want to necessarily have to wallow in the sins every morning. So all I'm saying is, right. you know, that's the balance that I'm kind of looking for. Right, kind of like Ruskin self-flagellating on the way to the, to the bordello. There are questions. Okay, so um, student, yes, yes, please. Thank you. And then a student question, if, if there is one. I, I have... Um, a lot of responses, and, I'm, and many of them echo some of what... Can you hear? Ah. Sorry. I have a lot of questions, and many... Um, and, and I'm going to be selective. And also, I am echoing, I think, um, some of the things that Samantha um, has been um, articulating, and also the uh, person in the back. Um, I, I am a psychologist. Um, I'm a clinician, so I don't do that much research. But I do... Um, read a lot um, in psychology and also um, American history and um, studies of racism. And I am very um, skeptical of data that is not located um, historically. Um, And I wanted to say that first. Um, so I understand that you don't want to get bogged down in 
a lot of, well, this is the history of this, and, you know, yes, America did have slavery. Let's deal with the present uh, crisis around immigration, um, it, attitudes towards it, and um, uh, contemporary American politics um, and British. But to even um, think that we um, can talk about what it means to be white um, when there's a lot of research, I believe, historical research. I'm, I'm thinking particularly of Nell, Nell Irvin Painter's book, The History of White People, that um, makes a, a very persuasive case that racial categories were invented um, in the you know, 15th or 16th century. It very much had to do with the rise of colonialism. But that in, um, let's just say, America, the people who were considered white were um, largely Anglo-Saxon. And that many people that we would consider white today, including my Italian mother, um, were not considered white when they arrived. Um, and um, no, you know, and, and, and that in fact, in order to become white, Irish were not considered white. Um, and to become white, they had to, in fact, give up a great deal of their ethnic identification and identify with the ruling powers in, in this country. I don't think that I agree that um, American history is most interesting to white people. I think you said that. Um, I think that white people should learn a new history that includes the fact that many, many different peoples, particularly black people brought here to be slaves, is the history of America. And so that's just some of my responses. My question is, you say that you write this book, you um, make three main arguments for what contributes to political differences around um, uh, immigration. And then you say, um, these obviously, we, what we need to do is come to some accommodation and compromise. Um, I think that Obama tried to do that. I think that we have a candidate now, Joe Biden, who very much wants to do that. You say a lot of this is based in psychology. I do not see that having people come to this lecture or read your book or take classes even in the kind of research you're doing is um, at all sufficient to make your case. And I am wondering if you know people or you have worked with people who have really practical ideas about how to reach the accommodation and compromise that I'm sure all of us want to some extent. Thank you. Right, okay, so quite a bit there. I, um, you know, I agree with, I mean, Again, this is a question of how do you heal these divisions, which are extremely serious and growing. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't. I, the, the problem is, I think both sides are going to have to have to give on this. You mentioned Biden and Obama. I, I think both of those figures would be good figures for addressing this this issue. And I think Obama did it quite well. Uh, but well, he did succeed in getting elected twice. Right, but, but wait, but that's, okay. Right, but then the, the, it was Clinton, not Obama, who was running. And so you had a big shift that, that occurs. And plus you have the issue of immigration. Trump was able to, to sort of capitalize on that because none of the other primary candidates were making that central to their pitch. But I think the Democrats, I guess I would just say the approach of Biden and Obama would be a better one than, than what's being proposed by some of the under, other candidates who are not really addressing uh, the issue. 
Okay. I, is there a student question in the audience? I would love to have a student question. Okay, here. And then we'll, do, we'll take both. We'll take both. Uh, yes. I, um, I feel like there's a big uh, contradiction in your argument, which is that on one hand, you have like a very kind of accepting view of whiteness as an identity. You kind of frame it as a relatively innocent thing, right? You say like there's a difference between solidarity with your own group and hatred of another. But then the whole argument of your book is that because of this solidarity, white people don't want non-white people coming into their countries, which I know it's just about immigration. But I think that if you look at the history of American immigration and all the legislation, even the existence of immigration debates as a matter of public policy, it's always been about non-white people coming to the country and attempts to restrict that. I mean, if you look at Ellis Island, for example, white people were flooding into the country there was, no, it, there was never a question of documentation. You came in, and if you were disease-free, they would let you in, right? This existence now of an immigration debate where people are upset about immigrants coming in and they want to restrict it, it, it it's rooted in race, and I have no doubt, and I, I would be surprised if anyone did, that if it were white people flooding across the southern border right now instead of brown people, the debate would not exist. Can, let's take, let's okay. take the second question, and then you can, okay. we'll wrap up. Okay. Um, um, so first, I want to thank you for um, truly I, energizing me and I think a lot of this audience um, and uh, with yeah. a compelling and it's a good I thing this confusing late in conversation to start. Um, I just want to start. I, I know I walked in about five minutes late um, and you touched on the, the notion of acknowledgement. And I'm not sure if you did this, um, but I apologize in advance. If you acknowledge, if you made a land acknowledgement when you started your presentation, and I think that there's an inherent contradiction in that. Um, and I'm really struggling at the core with your data and finding a space to feel optimistic about your finding this kind of middle ground when, on such divisive topics when the language you're using to create your data is inherently elitist and racist, by using terms like Hispanic to, to cultivate data in this day and age, it seems like really ineffective and confusing to me. And I am wondering who your audience is when you claim to be of a liberal mindset when you're using language of the right. Um, in that, in that mindset, um, just have many notes. Thank Give you. Give me one moment. Um, on the notion of privilege and the idea that you can wake up in the morning and make a decision as to where you set your intention in terms of what you worry about, that is not a privilege that everyone has. And I want to acknowledge that. And I also want to acknowledge, uh, acknowledge the language that you use around economic precariousness which is in fact poverty. Um, and with all of these critiques of the things that you have to say, I'm wondering where we might actually start the conversation. Because if at the core there is a conversation and I'm infuriated by much of what you've had to say, where might we have a dialogue? Thank you, If thank we're you. technically on the same side. We, 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 have, to, we have to keep going, but thank right. you, thank okay. you. Um, yeah, so to, to the first point here, some really good uh, points that I, I actually think what's happening now is not that different from what happened in the 1920s, for example, or other periods in other countries in Scotland in the interwar period with Irish migration that essentially whenever you get these large-scale migrations and demographic changes, you tend to get populist movements pushing back on that, which you had in this country when it was white people in Britain. The Brexit vote, a big chunk of that was about East European white immigrants, right? So now, of course, we can, again, we can play around with white and what that means. This is essentially people who are outside the ethnic majority population. Of course, over time, you have assimilation and you have redefinition of the boundaries of what it means to be white or, or what it means to be part of the ethnic majority. So I'm saying in the book, for example, that the definition of the ethnic majority will eventually encompass people who don't look white but have some sort of European heritage. So there's going to be this continual expansion of the meaning. Um, I don't know. I, I think there's a... I'm not... You know, if So I think we have an example of where there were white people coming into the United States and that didn't make a damn difference as far as the hue and cry over immigration. So I'm not sure that particularly holds. I, I think that 
Yeah, on the illegal front, the question is what, what the laws were at the time. If there weren't laws, if the laws were such that, in fact, you didn't need papers, then there's a slightly different situation than when the laws say you do need papers and people don't have them. So I think, again, it's, it's a bit of a, I'm not sure it's quite right to say that if they were white, there wouldn't be this debate, because I actually think there would be. Um, I don't know if I fully answered your question. I probably haven't. I'm happy to continue it later. Um, the question over here, yeah, I mean, I'm happy to, you know, if, if you want to discuss evidence, uh, you know, it's very important to have, for any theory to be measurable and falsifiable, right? I mean, otherwise, there's nothing to check a theory based on one's own preconceived notions. So there has to be some sense in which all of our theories can be disproven, at least hypothetically. This is sort of the Popperian method. So I guess I'm, I would be open to having any kind of a conversation uh, as long as there was this, this premise of falsifiability where we could go out and do a test or we could go and collect some evidence that could adjudicate between our competing views of the world. Um, so, yeah, I, I, and I think, I, and I didn't quite get, there must have been some second part of your question. Sorry, I, I might have lost that. Did, did you want to expand on that or no? Okay. No, I think, I okay. think that uh, the conversation can continue right. uh, after the final panel during the wine and cheese reception. Please right. uh, join me in thanking Eric and myself. Thanks. Thanks very much. <laughs>